Welcome to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Nadd, and this podcast is being produced in partnership with High Plains Journal and Great Plains Regeneration. With me today is Zach Stuckey. Welcome, Zach. Hi, Jess. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. You know, with High Plains Journal and the publisher, it really is my mission as a son and grandson to grow or just here in the heart of Kansas that we make sure soil health and our content is always practical and real. And no matter what cropping system you're in, that it impacts your bottom line immediately. Excellent. Healthy soil equals healthy people, planets and animals. And we're excited to be here. Welcome back to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Nadd, and today I am super excited to be joined by Monty Bottoms. Monty, how are you today? Jessica, great to see you. Glad I could be here. All right. So a little bit of background. Monty has deep roots in agriculture as a fifth-generation farmer in Northwest Illinois and a growing passion for soil health and regenerative agriculture. He founded Ag Solutions Network, where he uses his hands-on farm experience to help lead and teach others through the network of retail partners and grower services. Monty and the ASN team provide advanced biological-based plant nutrition and guide customers to take full systems approach on their operation to optimize success. So that was, you know, that was the short bio, Monty, but I want to hear about you. Tell me how you are and, and give me a little bit of, about your background. Well, I started farming uh, when I was five years old. Uh, my grandmother gifted me two bread gilts, and that that started the the chaos. And uh, throughout uh, high school, you know, I continued to raise uh, feeder pigs, and then uh, bought a very small seventeen acre farm next to me, and uh, that became the crop production side. Uh, fast forward today, um, you know, we farm about twenty five hundred acres and uh, do everything in as uh, regenerative of a, a posture as we can no-till cover crops and integrating livestock. So there's a lot of steps in between. Uh, once I graduated college, I was part of a Case IH dealership and managed the store and wanted to see farmers implement uh, no-till and was one of the first Case IH dealers to work and offer from delivery a Martin till type system. So I got to work with uh, Howard Martin and Paul Reed and and all that that cohort back in the early 90s when we were trying to make planters work better in no-till systems prior to all of the wonderful inventions that have come out from precision planting, Dawn, and others. So it was fun to see that. And uh, after the dealership uh, was sold to another uh, conglomerate putting a bunch of stores together, I went to California to run a Case IH dealership there. And I fl- fell in love with the variety in California. It's, it's amazing. Uh, you really need to, if you're a farmer, go there and just see the the variety and the abundance that can be produced in the Central Valley of California. Started working uh, out there and I just saw this intensive tillage regime. You know, there's eight and 10 tillage passes between crops and sometimes two crops per year. So it wasn't uncommon for a tractor to put, you know, 2000 hours a year on a tractor. You know, that's a 10 year old tractor for some people in the Midwest and it's one year old in California. So that was, that was amazing to me. And we started helping uh, cotton farmers go to minimum tillage, uh, cover crops with tomato farmers. And I just saw a real need to put together 
biologically based plant nutrition and tillage in a conservation manner, along with irrigation technology to make a system to grow agronomic crops in California. So that started California Ag Solutions in 2004. And it was my wife and I, today we have a team of uh, about 18 people that are helping uh, uh, farmers in the Central Valley grow everything from, you know, cotton and tomatoes to dairy forage crops, uh, cantaloupe, melons, sweet corn, and almonds, pistachios, and walnuts. So there's uh, quite a variety there that we get to work with in a, in a regenerative way. We've actually got almond farmers that we've, we've got four different almond farmers that we've incorporated grazing sheep into their orchards, some with chickens. Uh, we do regenerative cotton projects where we're grazing uh, cover crops ahead of cotton production. We're doing uh, completely no-till tomatoes. Uh, we've done uh, no-till cover crop cabbage and just a lot of advanced things that's been a lot of fun to see. Um, you know, as a family was growing up and grandkids are getting older, uh, parents needed some assistance. My wife and I decided to move back to Illinois and got more involved in the day-to-day operations at the farm. And then I ran across that crazy Gabe Brown guy. Okay. Somebody needs to arrest him because he's caused me a lot of pain and anxiety and hard work. Uh, I heard him first at national no-till conference. I believe it was in 2016 talking about the progression of organic matter improvement on his farm. And then I heard him again at no-till on the plains about three weeks later, you know, some of us, it takes a couple times of hearing stuff before it soaks in. Right. And, uh, it was one of those things I thought, this just seems too good to be true. How is he doing this in North Dakota where they got 90 days to grow something? I thought I've got all these growing days in Illinois and I'm nowhere close to those organic matter levels. So either this guy is completely full of crap or (laughs) I need to do what he's doing. So, uh, as any good husband would do, uh, my wife for her birthday, I said, let's go to Bismarck, North Dakota. So <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> took her Wait, running. what time oh, of year is ahead. your wife's birth? Well, this is really important factor here. What time of year? Well, it is was your- in August. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't hate her that much. Come on. <laughs> I, uh, so I went up, um, mm-hmm. we spent some time with Dwayne Beck and Pierre, South Dakota. I got the tour with him, spent some time with him. That was wonderful. Got to see Dan Forgey. I uh, went on up, saw Jay Fuhrer, and then I ended with um, uh, Gabe and Paul Brown. Toured the ranch, got to see their direct marketing business. And unfortunately, uh, Gabe is not full of crap. It's the real thing. So my guiding philosophy is when you know something is the right thing to do, you do it. You don't wait. You don't wonder. You don't what if. When you've got the information at hand that, and you've made the evaluation, this is the right thing to do. You need to not walk. You need to run and do it and get it done. So that's what we did. We started integrating cattle. Then in 2017, we incorporated chickens, I believe in 2019, and we went to pigs in 2020 and doing it all in a regenerative context, uh, grazing cover crops ahead of crops doing different crop rotations and summer covers to be able to graze there, setting land out to graze. So we're doing a full integrated approach. And then we've, we've done everything under the Grateful Graze brand to sell directly to the consumer. So that's where we're at today. And it's been an interesting journey. 
I've become a much more observant person. Um, you have to be much more patient around animals. It's, it's, uh, it's a challenge and it's, they've taught me a lot and I, I really, really appreciate that. Well, and that was my first question too, was, and, and I think a lot of us, this is our 10th podcast that, that we've done, which is exciting. Number 10. Um, <laughs> and that's one thing that we talk about is what is that first step? And you kind of answered that question for us. It's the, it's the, it's the learning. It's realizing that some of this, what you think is sensational um, media or look what this one guy did in this one place and it was impossible and nobody's ever going to be, be able to do it again. Um, but that's not the case with the, with the soil health. We actually can do this. We can regenerate soil and we can see this progression of the increase of soil organic matter. And do you think that because of these pioneers that have come before and, and you're a pioneer in your own right for a lot of the, the innovation that you've done, do you think that the future is that we can speed this up based off of the work that's already been laid? Well, that's a great question. And that's my dream. So by the time I die, I want to see conventional farming be regenerative farming. And so I really want to, within the next, um, I don't know, who knows, maybe I'll get hit by a truck today and it won't happen. But uh, uh, I really want to see in the next 20 to 30 years that regenerative practices become the normal practices. And I think we can do that, but that's going to require a real focus in the right direction. And part of the reason that we created the uh, Ag Emerge uh, platform was to reach out to thought leaders, you know, like you were talking about the pioneers in the industry, but also the research thought leaders that are exploring different areas. Reach out to innovative farmers at, uh, and innovative larger farmers that can do this in a large, impactful way. And also to ag technologists, because rather than just making a few more bushels break or a few more dollars break, or we need modern ag technology to really take its focus on a regenerative ag paradigm instead of just making the current broken conventional ag paradigm a little bit better. So we can't keep making bad a little bit better. We have to start with the right approach and make it available at scale. That's been the whole focus of really what I'm trying to do is uh, evaluate things on my own farm. And then how can we help farmers all across the country do this on a scalable basis? You know, we don't have a definition for regenerative. And, and I've been asking this question and talking about this question for a long time. I one time put it on Facebook and we had 89 different, different definitions. In your mind, what is the regenerative ag, ag paradigm that you would like to see? be considered agriculture of the future? What does that paradigm look like just in general terms, maybe for the United States row crop? Regenerative by its very nature should mean improving over time. So we are bringing it back to a natural state or as close to a natural state as possible over time. So we have some idea of what that legacy was pre-plow, pre-fences. And we can analyze what that is in order to bring our production practices in line with what a natural ecosystem would have been. And that then assumes whether you're a believer in evolution or a believer in natural design, that design in the beginning was what was optimum for us as people, uh, for us as a planet, for us as different species. 
when we keep adding technology to solve problems that we created with a previous technology, uh, we're not moving, we're not getting better. Okay, so we need to do things that really reset and try to help us mimic natural ecosystems as close as possible. So uh, the definition of regenerative is not a static definition. It is a um, definition that is a principle of where you are heading toward instead of where you're at today. And if we get too hung up on specifics of definitions, then we've lost the concept. So it requires a little bit different. Not only does it require a different way of farming, it requires a different level of thinking. So Einstein said it best, the problems that we've created, this level of thinking cannot be solved until we reach another level of thinking. Yeah, technology can't out technology what might be issues from technology. <laughs> so, um, GMOing our way out of GMOs. So, it's- well, and and that's very valid. That's very valid. And I'd I'd love your take on that because uh, we did create a system of agriculture that did beautiful things and has done beautiful things. And so we're we would you know we're not we're not saying anything of the of the opposite of that but the future to you though we've got to have a completely different paradigm and we can't ex- exactly we can't just keep um running this same gmo system over and over again because from a producer standpoint did it work did it create better and better if we're living in the greatest extinction event on planet earth right now largely driven by agricultural practices did we really do better? I think as farmers, and I'm a farmer myself first, I think we drink a lot of Kool-Aid. I think we are marketed to by trade groups, by lobbying groups that lobby on our behalf to think that we feed the world and that we're sustainable and all these things. And I don't think that's true. I think we've accepted an untruth. I think we have to be brave enough and we have to be bold enough to step back and realize that hmm, maybe something I have been doing isn't right. And I think too often we don't like to do that because that that's scary. And we need to, we need to just think, have knowing what I know now, what I keep doing to do the things I what the way that I have done. Them. And we need to be afraid to be the same instead of being afraid to make a change. So I, I know, I understand what you're saying, Jessica, but I think we've all been a little bit um, marketed to, to stay in our current production paradigm. What portion of that exactly? I mean, is it, is it that using the GMO systems could help us decrease um, some of the applications that we have, but what we've seen is we've seen an increase in tolerant weeds and weed pressure and, um, have we seen, you know, none of these systems have taken into account nutrient density of our crops. And so is it the declining nutrient that might have been um, something that's going to force people out of this system? What do you think is going to force producers out of the system that they've been in for so long? I think as a producer gets closer to the customer, they understand better what the customer wants and needs. Today, you know, as we're often on average willing to give up 86% of every food dollar to somebody else in the middle, you know, we have a 14% connection, if you will, with the consumer. Uh, 
and we don't really know what they want. And, and we're told that because consumers don't want GMOs that by trade groups and everything that, well, you know, those consumers, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just, they're just scared and they're, they're watching too many Netflix documentaries, you know? Well, is that what Apple says when they make an iPhone? Well, you know, consumer really wants a camera on this iPhone, but yeah, what do they really know? We're not going to put a camera on this iPhone because that just costs too much. And if they need to take a picture, they can go get a camera where they want it. You know, if Apple would have done that, Apple wouldn't even exist today. So why as farmers do we think it's okay to do something that's convenient for us, but not what a customer wants? We have to get in tune with our customers and we have to grow crops the way they want. And just because we have these tools doesn't always mean that's what we should use. Uh, you know, and how, how did we control corn rootworm before rotation? How did we control corn borer before? Well, we didn't have 50% of the acres in corn. How did we control weeds before rotation and other things? I know I'm doing things where I control weeds with cover crops and soybeans. So it doesn't have to be Dicamba, Liberty Link, Roundup Ready, and Extendamax four-way chemistry capable because guess what? The weeds will learn how to get around those too. We have to think bigger than just, as Dwayne Beck says, whack-a-mole farming. We have one problem, we get out the hammer and try to whack that mole. And every time we whack another mole, we create two more problems. So we, we just need to take a little step back and um, think about how do we not create the problem instead of trying to solve the problems we create. You know, that have you ever had this experience if you're at a conference or um, you're networking? Is there an age range of folks that completely get it? And then there's an age range that, that maybe not. And it has a lot to do with exactly who's marketing to us, who's advertising. The example I'll give is that I was doing um, a local food lecture series a number of years ago, and we had these um, older women probably in their in their 70s and maybe even some above 70s that had done a book club and they were reading about soil health. It was, it was phenomenal. And they understood this whole movement so well because when they were growing up and, and when they were within their operations, it was called farming. And so there was more crop diversity. There was more rotation. There were, there was a lot more that we were doing that solved some of the problems that technology is trying to zap right now. So have you found that in any of your interaction? I get a kick out of when we're having these discussions on our farm uh, with my dad and he's like, Oh yeah, we used to do that when I was a kid, you know, uh, on cover crops or, looking at legumes for nitrogen sources. Oh yeah. You know, dad used to plant sweet clover and oh, and used to do this. And, you know, it's just kind of reminding him, yeah, this is kind of what we used to do. And, and my favorite thing is when we started interceding cover crops, you know, he says, you tell me all these years I've been trying to kill the weeds and now you're out here planting weeds. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then he laughed and, you know, he totally yeah. understands it. He just laughed and walked away. So that's that's the wonderful thing about you know when when you've uh, earned the the right and age wise to you know poke a little fun at your son and and laugh and walk away. So that's that's always a great thing. Well, I do love that because I guess from for the way that I'm thinking about this is we're not that far removed 
from a lot of these practices, right? And you you were talking about uh, you know some of these outlier results that that guy that guys like Gabe Brown we thought were outliers. They're not outliers. It's good production and good management that is going to bring us back into this living continuum of the soil. So I, I think I'm hoping that we're not too far removed that we can't turn this ship around. And we can't help to enhance agriculture. So you talked a little bit about the consumer. Take us into the, the Grateful Graze and, and what how, how did that come about? Tell us a little bit more. Well, we realized we were creating a higher value product um, that people wanted. And it's hard to just let it get absorbed into the supply chain and become a commodity. So the other part is, is that raising Crops or animals in this way is is harder and more cost intensive. So they take longer to reach maturity. They take more land, take more labor. So we're at a cost disadvantage because the current production model is extraordinarily cost efficient. Hands down, it's amazing. But we realized we needed to capture some of that margin that was being made by the middleman to help offset the added cost of production that we had in the animals. So that's why we, we created Grateful Graze in order to capture all of the value that we're creating instead of just a small portion of that value. And the neat part is, is it's given us an opportunity to educate consumers, uh, learn what they want, what they need. Uh, I just, this morning was at a culinary uh, class at Scott Community College, uh, you know, working with their class and students and having them do taste differences between ours and what you get at the grocery store. And, you know, it, it was a, it was a great experience. So just, it's provided us a lot of opportunities to kind of share the message locally and really test to see if this is something viable for farmers and other areas to implement. So what, what's your feedback? The, the marketing analysis that you guys have done, is this something that consumers want? Yes, they want. Um, the problem is, is we're asking them to spend more than what they would traditionally on traditional foods. So typically there needs to be, there's, the majority of our customers is a health-related motivation. So they are choosing our products, and it doesn't matter what segment, whether it's a baby boomer, Gen X, millennial, all, all of those are choosing because of health. One is because they have a health problem. One is the doctor says they're about to have a health problem, or the millennials don't want to have a health problem. So that's, that's kind of where, where it's at. But about 80% of our customers choose based on health. 10% is animal welfare. We have quite a few customers that were uh, recovering vegetarians, uh, recovering vegans that are that are uh, putting our grass-fed proteins back into their diets, and about ten percent of them are ecosystem services, so environmentally oriented, uh, you know, water cycle, those kind of people that value our production practices, making better ecosystem impact. I think that's fantastic that that you guys are doing that, and we'll put some information about that. Um, tell me how. In your production system of soil health, obviously the grass-fed livestock operation fits directly into that, but was it always that way? You know, maybe let's break down a little bit of logistics, some some agronomic um, practices that a producer should consider if they want to go down this route. So I think your first step, and and, and this is kind of the order we did it in, and it seems to make a, a good order to do it in. Is if you're if you're full tillage, you know, conventional farming, no cover crops, you can you can kind of choose. I, I like to first off get nutrition on the planter, so that way we can 
as you change your tillage, as you incorporate cover crops, you change nutrient cycling with you in your field. So that's a whole basis of what we do here day in, day out, Ag Solutions Network, is we help guys look at making that conversion to no-till, making that conversion to implementing cover crops, because we don't want them to have that yield drag that many people talk about. Well, you're going to have a yield drag for two or three years. You know, if a conventional guy hears that where you're paying $550, $600 an acre for rent and $2,000 a ton for ammonia, you know, it's like, boop, turn off the, I'm not listening anymore. You know, I can't, we're farming on a $50 margin. We can't, you know, take a setback for two or three years. So we, we try to address that with some technology at planting and then also be able to to better adapt that. So I think no-till is probably step one. That's that's really the easiest thing to do. It's a time savings. It uh, requires some things. Then I think getting cover crops in there is definitely a step two. You know, then down the road, you got to look at what your markets are. Is an opportunity to diversify and what you're growing. Can you grow cover crop seed? Can you grow, you know, field peas, for example, is very popular right now. Um, you know, buckwheat, so non-wheat-based non flower sources, uh, depends on your location, what your markets are, you know, look at diversifying a little bit, get those things going. And then if you want to take a walk on the wild side, get the, get the livestock going. So um, I think those are kind of the order of things to do it the easiest. If you're like me, where I'm at, we pulled every fence, tore down every barn, you know, capped off every well, because it, we're corn farmers and that's all we do. So, you know, we started with nothing and uh, had to come back, but uh, you know, ultimately our goal with our virtual fencing technologies we're working on and robotic waters and all this jazz, um, we really hope, uh, my slogan is, and I'm making fun of myself at the same time. So if you're a corn farmer, don't be offended right now, but my slogan is making uh, grazing so simple, even a corn farmer can do it. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> no, I mean, I really like this conversation. I was, um, actually, I'm a subscriber to your Ag Emerge podcast that you have out. And so I was flipping through some of the episodes that you have, and I had stumbled upon one that you were in, uh, early December. And I'm sure you remember exactly. And I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so you were talking, I, <laughs> I could see the deer in the headlight look right now. Um, but you were talking about the potential for, um, and, uh, Increase of input prices, unavailability of things that that producers will need for crops here in the United States. And some of this is COVID related, it's supply chain related. But since December 2021, we've had some pretty big political and global upheaval. So give me a summary. What, What are producers thinking about right now about the current state of agricultural affairs? I think the availability issue is fairly resolved itself um, on the broad market. I'm not aware. We'll see when <laughs> the product rolls here in a few weeks, if it if it is there. I think it has. I think uh, a lot of that was used as maybe leverage for the higher prices. And I think it took a year for suppliers last year to, or the last cycle we had where we went to high prices on corn to fully capture that value. And it doesn't seem like they wanted to wait this time. They wanted to get the I price their products in the uh, right at the same time. So anyway, um, that's where we're at. I think we'll be okay. Uh, as far as a geopolitical thing in re- regard to Russia, Ukraine, they are a large exporter of, um, you know, natural gas and urea. So both of which go into making UAN solutions or ammonium. And I think we'll have an impact 
probably longer term because this won't just go away uh, on the larger supply chain. So especially the Western United States, a lot of urea comes in from Russia and or China. And that is sourced, you know, either from Russia or from Russian natural gas. So I think we're going to have some impact on them nitrogen prices. So if there ever was a time, folks, uh, to consider a systems-based approach and regenerative agriculture, incorporating noduling uh, cover crops and no-till technologies and optimizing the timing to where, you know, our philosophy is no nitrogen goes in the field until the seed's there. And then we feed the rest as the plant needs it. Uh, you know, if you're worried about the equipment costs associated with getting ready for that, well, you've got a, a nitrogen at two to three X the price that it used to be. You've got some money that you can uh, spend on the equipment and technologies and the applications to, to get the nitrogen diet more ideally timed to where we can spend less total pounds of nitrogen in a field. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a positive to everything, Jessica. So, you know, high prices uh, encourage us farmers to be a little more innovative and that innovation is going to better align with a minimizing disturbance soil health principle and, and be better for the environment in general. So I'm, I'm excited about it. That is fantastic. I think that's a, a great way to look at it. And I think it's going to help us leverage change in the future. All right. Well, speaking with Monty Bottoms today, and it's been a pleasure to be chatting with you again. And as always, um, thanks for being on the show today. Well, it was great, Jessica. And I wish you the best in this podcast and all of your listeners a great growing season. Appreciate you joining us today. And for more soil health information from High Plains Journal, please sign up, hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the page. I look forward to growing together.